Thanks, Christina. Uh, we've got a long ways to go to, uh, this afternoon or this at lunch. I've got 100 years to cover in half an hour. So it's going to be a gallop. Uh, what I'm going to try and do is actually present this in a series of vignettes, one after the other, uh, that cover this historical period. And so hopefully they all add up to something at the end. Uh, so let's give this a shot and see how it works. Uh, this topic actually began with the Southern Alberta Art Gallery. Uh, they asked me to consider what was the most important or most visible uh, uh, Canadian art that existed on the world stage, and I began thinking about it. And, uh, the natural answer is, of course, the group of seven, because they are identified as uh, Canada's national image, and most of you will know at least some of the group of seven, I'm going to suspect. It was also possible Emily Carr might fit in there. She's certainly well known. But then I realized that those people are primarily known in Canada rather than internationally. So I began thinking, okay, well, maybe it's one of our superstars that are out there right now and doing uh, current contemporary work. And in Canada, there's a guy named Jeff Wall, who you might not know, but he's known on the international stage as uh, a very, very important current artist uh, and has been for about 30 years. And then I thought, no, that's not really it. Uh, and then I thought, maybe it's one of our local superstars. Uh, we had here working uh, uh, George Burris Miller and Janet Cardiff, who uh, are currently uh, the toast of the Western art world. And then I thought, no, that's probably not it either. And then thinking about it, I began to realize that probably the most visible, most uh, um, important type of Canadian art that is seen by the most people in the world on a continual basis is, in fact, the Northwest Coast Native Totem Pole. So this is going to set out to try and prove that particular uh, notion. Uh, just the answer. <laughs> Now, uh, recently, something has actually uh, uh, led me to believe that this is, in fact, true. It was confirmation while I was working on this idea. Uh, appeared, of course, in the opening ceremonies of the uh, Olympics in Vancouver. And the designers of the Olympics nicely chose, at the very beginning of the opening ceremonies, to represent Canada in a way that everyone around the world, the billions of people who would be watching this, would instantly recognize as being an icon of Canada. And what they put on. Uh, first was uh, these four uh, Coast Salish, which is a, a group of First Nations people from around Vancouver, where the uh, ceremonies were held. Uh, Coast Salish welcome figures, which are totem poles. And realized that, yes, in fact, there is confirmation very recently that this is, uh, this is actually an accurate assessment. So it was good to see that and have that slide there just to uh, prove the thesis and tip my hand before uh, I actually launched into this thing. Uh, and I suspect that you might have all seen this if you watch television. I suspect some of you do have seen the opening ceremonies. And last night while watching television, it's now been adapted into an advertisement that is continuously being seen. So, yes, indeed, these are the most visible aspect of Canadian art that there is. Now, what I want to do is run through... Uh, uh, this particular history of the relationship between Canada and Northwest Coast Native Totem Poles uh, over the last hundred years. And I'm going to divide it down into actually five parts rather than four parts. Uh, I considered putting in a fifth part. Uh, and th the problem here is that this history has actually changed and changed substantially over the course of this period. Uh, there was a first period where well, First Nations art flourished in the 1800s, uh, but then there after in the late 1800s, uh, it was assumed by the colonial culture, that's uh, white colonial culture in Canada, that native cultures and arts were dying, uh, if not dead already. So this period came from about the 1880s uh, through the early part of the 
1900s. This was followed by a period in which Northwest Coast Native art was still considered to be dead and dying and gone, but it was now seen as possibly part of Canada's artistic heritage. And this period was fairly brief. Uh, it only occurred at first uh, in the latter part of the 1920s. So we'll examine that. Then, in the then it was abandoned. The idea was abandoned for a decade. In the 1930s, there was something called the revival of, North of Northwest Coast Native art, of Indian art in general in Canada, and we'll investigate what that was. Finally, from the 1970s on, there's actually been an entirely new way of thinking about Northwest Coast Native art and Native cultures in general, and that's that people are starting to look for um, uh, narratives of survival and discovering that the assumptions from the late 1800s were in fact largely wrong, that native cultures did not die, they did not go away, uh, they did not disappear. In fact, they were ongoing and continuous throughout this period. People just weren't looking at it uh, or for it because they assumed it was gone. So let's have a look and see how this works. Okay, who are the Northwest Coast people and what is a totem pole? Uh, the Northwest Coast people are the groups that make totem poles. They're the only groups in Canada that are originally made totem poles. And they are situated along the west coast of, uh, of Canada. Uh, they extend from uh, up in Alaska uh, down all the way down to uh, northern California. And there are various groups within this area. Uh, there are peoples that are completely distinct from one another, and not all of them made totem poles. The major people who made poles uh, are from about this, largely from this section up. So the people who we're going to be looking at as the most famous totem pole manufacturers or carvers are these people. They were formerly called the Kwak Yudel. Uh, they are now called the Kwakwakwak, uh, the Haida on the Queen Charlotte Islands, uh, the Shimshan, which are divided into three groups. There's a coastal Shimshan. There's the uh, uh, the Giksan, which are up the Skeena River, which is that line there. And then there's the Nishka, which are north of them. And then there's the Tlingit. These are the major people who actually turned out totem poles uh, prior to contact. And then to a degree, but only a smaller degree, the Coast Salish people uh, in around southern Vancouver Island and over on the mainland along the Fraser River. So we know where the totem poles were. Uh, now what we need to think about is what is a totem pole? And what is a totem pole? Well, these are archival photographs uh, from the Haida on the Queen Charlotte Islands. Uh, that's the Gitkasan who lived inland. They did not live on the coast. They actually lived about 120 miles inland from uh, Prince Rupert up the Skeena River. And all of these people, or these people in particular, had totem poles. Uh, this is a Haida village. Uh, it's at Skidigit, and it shows the various types of Haida poles. The Haida had four different types of poles uh, that were, each were distinct. There were mortuary poles, uh, there were house front poles, there were freestanding poles, and there were potlatch poles. The Gitkasan didn't have four, uh, four types. They had one type of pole, and it was primarily freestanding. And they were carved in different types of styles, so they're distinct from one another. So while these groups all had poles, uh, the poles are still, you can still tell a Gitkasan pole from a Haida pole. Uh, it's like their language. Their language is, uh, is distinct. And what were they? 
Well, it was thought at the times of contact that they were sort of idols that the First Nations people worshipped, but they're not. There's no religious significance along those lines to them at all. What they are instead is displays of prestige, power, and social position. Uh, what they are is each of these in, uh, individual images that are carved on them are called a crest, uh, and only the person who owned that crest, and they were owned, could actually have the right to display it. So each of these crests then are owned by one person on a pole. That person has the right to show that crest, and that crest carries with it prerogatives, powers, prestige, uh, and ownership. Uh, it's sort of like um, heraldry in, in uh, royalty, that uh, only the duke of so-and-so is allowed to show his particular crest, and it carries with it the fact that he's the duke, and he owns all these territories, and has the right to appear in this ceremony, and has the right to wear this particular insignia. That would be the same with these crests. So the raising of a totem pole was in fact a claim that the person putting up the pole had the right to display these. It declared that I am this person, I have this privilege, I have this power, I have this position, and this pole declares it to be so. So, to put up a totem pole, however, required a ceremony of recognition from the people around uh, to this particular claim, and that particular ceremony was called the potlatch. How many of you have heard of the potlatch? Ah, great. So you have a vague idea or a good idea of what the potlatch is. Uh, the potlatch was a large ceremony in which the person erecting the pole would ask everybody from the villages and the neighboring communities to come. It would be a huge ceremony. There would be feasting. Gifts would be distributed to the audience, uh, to the people who are there. There would be speeches. There would be dancing. There would be music. Uh, there would be uh, uh, food, uh, sort of like what we're having here, except I'm not declaring my professorship so you don't have to validate that. Uh, but you know, that was like the ceremony that went on at the university where I dressed up in robes and walked across the stage, right? Uh, that uh, it declared that I am now Professor Dawn, and everybody recognizes that. Well, what happens here is that uh, you would hold one of these ceremonies, and if the people came, and if they ate, so please eat, uh, that uh, then they agreed that you had the right to claim that privilege. And if you disagreed with that and you said, no, you don't have the right, I have the right, you had to hold a bigger, better potlatch to convince everybody that that was the case. And then they would come to your potlatch and the other person, they, you can see how this could escalate. At the end of the potlatch, or during the potlatch, gifts would be given out. And the person holding the potlatch would actually distribute his wealth to all of those present in various forms. So it was a huge and very important ceremony that went on. Uh, and it was their land registry. It was their marriage bureau. It was their, their uh, social, define their social status. Uh, the potlatch was the key to this entire cultural system. So... Uh, and potlatches and the pole carving flourished then during what was called the trade period, that is from the 1770s through until the middle part of the 1800s. Colonization in British Columbia had not yet begun in a major way, uh, and uh, First Nations people were very, very good traders. They certainly knew how to trade with the various uh, nations that were sending ships to collect furs. The furs were very lucrative. Uh, the First Nations groups along the West Coast became extraordinarily wealthy 
wealthy. And consequently, with this wealth, we're able to raise ever more elaborate and beautiful totem poles. Totem pole carving flourished then during the 1700s and the late 1700s and into the 1800s. However, in the latter part of the 1800s, colonization occurred, and along with that came anthropologists who were interested in these other cultures. And anthropologists saw these totem poles and realized that, yes, these are fantastic objects, and avidly attempted to collect them uh, and display them. Uh, for muse in museums and primarily at uh, expositions, uh, world expositions, like world's fairs. So world's fairs became the first great format for the display of Northwest Coast uh, native totem poles. Uh, for example, this Haida pole, which was collected by a man named uh, James Swan. Haidas are from the uh, archipelago of the Queen Charlotte Islands, now called Haida, it's now called by its First Nations name, Haida Gwaii. And he wanted one of these poles for this international exposition. So he negotiated with the Haida, and they flatly turned him down. Their poles were, they didn't want their pole to go off to a museum, because then the person owning the pole might well lose their right to the prerogatives uh, that their crests uh, had. They said, you know, we don't, you guys don't sell your tombstones, we don't sell our totem poles. So he came up with another solution. He found someone to carve him one. So he got a new pole carved, and that was what he had sent to uh, the, uh, which is this, the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition in 1876. And uh, it was a hit of the exposition. It was very popular, and many people saw this. Many more people saw this than the Canadian art that was being done at the time. So it was an image of, uh, of Canada that starts off way, way back in the 1870s. Uh, what else about this poll? Well, that will do. Okay. Now, another uh, uh, world's exposition happened in Chicago in 1893. And in 1893, they escalated. What happened was an anthropologist from the United States named uh, Franz Boas decided a single pole wouldn't do. He collected a number of poles from various villages at this time, sent them to Chicago, and they erected, in fact, a whole village. He didn't just buy poles. He bought the houses. So they literally brought the houses, shipped, dismantled them, shipped them to the Chicago, re-erected the poles, re-erected uh, the uh, uh, houses, and here's a shot of the house with a pole. It's a hide a pole. It's a hide a house. But he didn't just bring the material objects. He brought the people. So he approached uh, his informants among the Kwakwakwak, and in fact they. Uh, agreed to all come to, or a group of them uh, assembled to come to Chicago, and there they performed uh, their, their traditional ceremonies. Now, the performances of these traditional ceremonies were amazingly popular. They actually got a hall that seated thousands. I believe we're talking about 6,000 here. You know, a baseball stadium uh, uh, for uh, uh, showing the, uh, for these people to perform their traditional ceremonies. The halls were packed. Uh, the ceremonies were reported in the newspapers as far away as London, England. That's how uh, uh, famous. Almost instantly, the ceremonies that this group, including a guy named George Hunt, uh, how these ceremonies were received. So, amazing impact. Now, uh, the world knows about these. Unfortunately, the Canadian government was completely displeased. 
By this point in time, the Canadian government had started to pursue a policy uh, in which they decided it was best to civilize the savage, primitive, and barbaric peoples. And that meant turning them into Canadian citizens, and it also meant having them completely abandon their cultures, their languages, their arts, and in fact, their totem poles. So, when George Boaz... Uh, had these people for, perform these traditional ceremonies to these huge audiences, uh, attracting international attention, uh, the Canadian government went into a state of apoplexy, outrage. And they actually asked the administrators of the fair to shut these ceremonies down because they are an embarrassment to the Canadian government who is attempting to do the right thing by civilizing these people. Uh, it was explained to the Canadian government that, unfortunately, this was an American, uh, and they didn't have any jurisdiction. It was an American show. It was in Chicago, and Canada had to go take the proverbial hike. However, they did put on their own display. Canada did have another vision of what First Nations people were doing. What they did was they rounded up Native children, took them from their homes, shipped them to Chicago, created a room, put them at desks, and kept them there the entire day, showing the world how civilized we were by civilizing the native children. That was our display. So, yeah, there was the question of which was more barbaric. But then, the uh, uh, First Nations totem poles were then... Uh, had a world audience. In fact, they had more than just an audience in world's fairs. They also had a world's audience at home. This is a Kwakwakwa village. That's the uh, village from, uh, called Alert Bay from which the people in the previous photograph came. And that village, too, had totem poles. This is a shot, an archival shot, about 1910, of the village with its totem poles. This was actually on the tourist route. There were, back then even, uh, ferries and steamers going up and down the inside passage uh, between Vancouver Island and uh, the mainland, which is where the Kwa 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 were. Uh, has anyone ever done that? None of you? Some of you? Yeah, do it. It's fabulous. A little uh, uh, just plug for British Columbia. Uh, taking a tour on the boats up there is a, a great experience. Anyway, Alert Bay is, uh, was the village site. And it had totem poles. Now, the Kwakwakwak were notorious for one thing. One of the ways in which the Canadian government at the federal level decided to civilize the natives was the realization, based on the realization that the potlatch was the core to all First Nations cultures on the Northwest Coast. How to undermine the cultures? Ban the Potlatch. So in 1884-1885, the federal government devised a law called the Potlatch Ban, which made it illegal for any First Nations person uh, to hold anything that resembled a potlatch. And uh, it was put on the books. It looked like this would spell the end of First Nations cultures, and they would have to give up their own ceremonies and their own culture and their own privileges, their own identities, their own languages, their own uh, art, and become, as it were, Canadian. It didn't work. Uh, what happened was is that uh, there was a resistance to the potlatch ban. It was badly written as law and didn't really work. So they went on holding potlatches. This one held about 1911, about the same time, in Alert Bay. And this is just part of the person's wealth that they are stacked up and waiting to display. So there was resistance. 
But in 1913, a new man came to the head of the Department of Indian Affairs. His name was Duncan Campbell Scott. The first primary act he did in becoming his position was to rewrite the laws so it became possible to enforce them very easily. What he did was he made the Indian agent both the prosecutor and the judge, which is a good and convenient way to uh, do something legally if you want a, a particular verdict to happen. And in fact, Halliday, his name was, sorry, not Halliday, his name was uh, Duncan Campbell Scott. Uh, and in 1921, 1922, there was an enormous potlatch by Dan Cramner. Uh, and uh, Duncan, uh, sorry, the local Indian agent launched a prosecution. This became very famous in history because it looked like this was the prosecution that would end the potlatch. The law was now so well written and so watertight that it looked like the potlatch was over, and many people have believed that that was the case. Now, with First Nations cultures then thinking they were dead in 1922, uh, they could be safely transformed into Canadian art. And this occurred uh, in the wake of this man being made director of the Na National Gallery of Canada. His name is Eric Brown. Eric Brown is famous for... Um, uh, sponsoring uh, the Group of Seven, who subsequently became the uh, identified with Canadian national identity. And this is by Tom Thompson, who wasn't a part of the Group of Seven, but died just before they were formed. The other one is by uh, James MacDonald, who is uh, uh, one of the primary members of the group. And this was how they represented Canada. Now, subsequent, as a landscape, as a wilderness, as uh, uh, single trees uh, situated in the middle of the, of the wilderness, uh, what wasn't in these pictures at all was First Nations peoples, and that was often uh, later or more recently identified. Nonetheless, they, they were sent out internationally as the image of Canada, and they were sent to London in an exhibition at Wembley, which is where Wembley Stadium is now, uh, in 1924 and then again in 1925, and these works are all by the Group of Seven. The Group of Seven was given primary uh, uh, focus at this moment. Uh, then, it was an incredibly successful show. So what happened after that was he decided to send it to Paris and the center of modernism in the world at that moment at a place called the Jus de Palme uh, Gallery. And there Tom Thompson was given a major show, although he'd been dead for 10 years. But a problem arose. He had to share space with, very little space, with a small amount of Northwest Coast native art. This guy, whose name is Marius Barbeau, who's an anthropologist, managed to insinuate through very back, you know, backroom dealing a small portion of Northwest Coast native art into the Jus de Palme exhibition in Paris. Well, this is where things all went wrong. The Parisian critics, you know them French, loved this stuff, praised it and asked why there weren't rooms full of it. You know, what is this? This is fabulous. We've never seen it. This is great. We need more of it. What they didn't like? Tom Thompson and the group of seven. And they disparaged those landscapes. This became an embarrassing moment for Canada. And in fact, the history of this particular uh, exhibition, uh, in fact, what has been deleted from the histories of Canadian art ever since except for my book, uh, in which I <laughs> revealed it. Uh, all right, <laughs> so small plug for the book. Uh, Marius Barbeau was, however, interested in getting these artworks into, uh, uh, into uh, 
the category of Canadian art. And he actually encouraged people like A.Y. Jackson to go to the upper Skeena River, remember the Gitkasan people, we saw the photograph of their poles, and paint pictures of their poles. And he planned a major exhibition in 1927 at the National Gallery of Canada in which he was going to combine First Nations art, which he thought was dead and dying uh, and, uh, from cultures that were now going extinct, and combine it with contemporary modern Canadian painting, such as Emily Carr. And it was at this point that Emily Carr was actually introduced into, into the larger scheme of Canadian art. But this turned out to be a failure. Uh, the Parisian experience was far too uh, uh, difficult for the people to handle. So instead... Canadian art was dropped, or sorry, Northwest Coast Native art was dropped from the picture of Canadian art for a decade. This changed in 37, however, when in 1937, Canadian government got wind of what was going on in the United States, where a program for inserting Native art, particularly from the Southwest, into the American cultural heritage had been very successful, and it had been very successful monetarily. It had turned out that this art, Native art, was highly marketable. And all of a sudden, at the height of the Depression, it was discovered that this might be a way to actually enhance the uh, Native economy, which was becoming a drag or a drain on the uh, welfare system. Uh, and uh, uh, it was highly successful in 1939. Uh, there was a large exhibition of it that demonstrated how clearly uh, this could work in the United States and San Francisco. Uh, so the Canadian government very shortly decided to follow suit and announced that it was going to undertake a program to restore the lost arts of the Northwest Coast people uh, in Canada. However, those arts were not as lost as they had thought. Uh, they approached a carver named, uh, um, named Mungo Martin in 1938-1939, and they asked him to carve two poles for the exterior of the Canadian Pavilion, which was going to be held in, New York, uh, in the New York World's Fair in 1939. And Mungo Martin did. And clearly, Mungo Martin was a carver who was still alive, who was still carving magnificent poles, uh, and these poles were still being erected in Alert Bay, which clearly indicated that the culture was neither dead nor dying, but actually the arts were still flourishing. They just weren't being seen. But now they were visible, and visible to the world in New York at the New York World's Fair. Uh, this is a picture of the Canadian Pavilion, uh, designed by William F. Williams, who, by the way, is from Nelson, B.C., uh, and shows the situation of the poles that Mungo Martin carved uh, on the exterior of the building. And they showed up the interior of the building, which everybody believed or recognized was a disaster. Uh, this is what Canadian sculpture uh, that was non-native looked like. Um, and it bore a distinct relationship to that sculpture that was being promoted at that time in Nazi Germany and uh, communist Russia and uh, could easily have been, you know, from either uh, and looked a little dubious. However, so Mungo Martin is then part of this revival from the beginning. Now, the revival went into a hiatus because immediately after the fair, or actually during the extent of the fair, World War II broke out. This put everything on a hold in terms of the revival. But in the late 1940s, the early 1950s, Martin was hired to come back and lead the revival through two institutions in particular, the University of uh, British Columbia in Vancouver and the British Columbia Provincial Museum in, um, in Victoria, B.C. And in the 
early 1950s, and there, uh, as part of this revival, he built his uh, house, his house, it's called Mungo Martin's house, uh, on the grounds of the British Columbia Provincial Museum and carved a pole uh, to go uh, in front of it. And again, this pole is seen by every tourist who goes to Victoria. And since I'm from Victoria, I can tell you that's a lot. Uh, Mungo Martin went on to carve many, many poles that were distributed around the world. This pole, which is very high, it's 100 feet high, uh, is actually in um, the park. The park. No. No, in London. Windsor Park. In Windsor Park. It was carved for Her Majesty uh, in, and is in Windsor Park. Okay. So his poles then became part of this revival and began to be distributed around the world. They're distributed here. This, of course, is Mungo Martin's pole in the University of Lethbridge uh, in our collection that we have on uh, display uh, in the library. Uh, also part of this group were, uh, as the... Um, as the revival progressed during the 60s and 70s, Bill Reed became another of the great carvers uh, who erected uh, poles, like these ones that were on display in Vancouver at the Museum of Anthropology. Uh, Robert Davidson became a carver. Now, he is primarily recognized as one of the most artistic of the carvers. His poles are commissioned by people around the world. This is in New York State, uh, and these were carved in the 1980s. Uh, this pole is carved by a Gitkasan carver in 1977. It's in Rochester in the States. You can see what I'm getting at. This is a pole carved in 19... Uh, uh, 82 by Norman Tate, and it has a nice long caption to it uh, that is uh, nicely informative. And it's in the Field Museum in Chicago. Poles are now distributed around the world. They are now visible to more people than any other form of Canadian art. They are, in fact, I've got to say, uh, the most visible, the most ubiquitous, the most uh, readily accessible uh, image of ca Canadian art in the world. The British Museum has just uh, re-erected two poles in the middle of its main foyer uh, right this, just within the last few years. Uh, these are display, on display uh, along with the Elgin marbles. It's this level of prestige that these poles have brought to Canada. And lastly, well, it just turns out that they're also visible uh, throughout the world on television to billions and billions of people. I hope I've given you something to have an introduction to totem poles, the issues of the last hundred years uh, that have surrounded them, the difficult history that that's been, and that we've all seen something. Thank you.